Welcome to the Swamp Flex Podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. I am Allie. And I am Boomer. We are three friends who gather over the internet to talk about what movies we've been watching separately over the past couple weeks, and then we come together to wrap it all up with one movie we watched in unison. I am recovering from a very chaotic Oscars watch party as I am speaking right now, and um, also a very minor bout of like throat and chest illness. So I'm going to be fairly low energy on this episode, and I'm supposed to be the one sort of guiding this conversation, so hopefully I can get through it fairly okay. I do have a few genre films I've watched in the last few days that I could talk about. I actually got solicited from a director to watch his low-budget genre movie. Wow. Oh, wow. Psycho Ape. (laughs) (laughs) Is that our good friend of the show? No, I I don't know this guy. I think um, he he got our contact information from Bill Arsenault, who has been a guest on the show a few times. Ah, okay. He was just looking for people who are friendly to low-budget genre movies to review his film that came out two years ago. Uh, and it's like very cheap to rent. It's like two or three bucks VOD. I really enjoyed it. It Psycho Ape promises to be the cheapest, dumbest ape movie you've ever seen. And um, I think it delivers on both of those fronts. There are a lot of like loving references to people in gorilla suit movies like Congo and King Kong, <laughs> Planet of the Apes. My favorite was when they give a very loving tribute to Bella Lugosi meets a Brooklyn gorilla, which is one of my favorites. And in that spirit, it's basically just a very silly hangout horror movie where it's just people playing around with a camera and a gorilla suit. The ape is a psychopath who stabs people to death with bananas. And the bananas just sort of treat it as if it were a giant kitchen knife and just slices through people as if it were a regular slasher and not a um, gorilla suit banana combo. It's got Kansas Bowling in it, who I don't know if a lot of people follow her career, but I'm kind of fascinated by her. Uh, She directed this movie called BC Butcher when she was only 17 in like her dad's backyard. And I really liked it when that came out. And I've kind of just been waiting for her career to take off in some kind of way. And she's got this movie she stars in and has like an encyclopedic knowledge of goofy ape horror movies from the past. And uh, also, she's got a new movie coming out that's like a spoof of, like, Mondo films um, that she directed herself. And I'm excited to watch that as well. So if any of that kind of, like, vintage schlock, kind of bad on purpose, but, you know, genuinely trying to do something outrageous with, like, with a near non-existent budget, if that appeals to you, I thought Psycho Ape was a lot of fun. I was less generous to the new Ty West film called X that a lot of horror nerds seem to be very jazzed about right now. It also calls back to vintage drive-in era genre templates. Um, Specifically, it's kind of mashing up Texas Chainsaw Massacre with vintage pornography from like the late 70s, right before porno like moved into the video market when it was still like feature-length films with plots. I thought Mia Goth was very good in it. She plays two different roles. She's both this like porno actress with this like X factor appeal. Like everybody's just like sort of drawn to her. And she also plays an elderly woman who is one of the people that's drawn to her. And all the violence stems from her own lust for her younger self, like pawing at her own flesh and basically just like sexually coveting this young actress uh, as an old woman. I thought all that stuff was great. I thought Mia Goth was fantastic in the movie. I was just like exhausted by how many of these gorier, 
horror movies from the past like two decades, like all the way since Rob Zombie started making films in the early 2000s, like all this shit feels so stuck in that like 70s grindhouse aesthetic. I'm so tired of it. That like fake film grain look. Yeah. The trailers before that grindhouse double feature that um, Rodriguez and Tarantino did. It's just so old hat at this point that I'm like over it. And then in this specific case, the like joke in the first hour of the film is that these like porno film crew people are trying to make artful pornography and like try to transcend their genre by like making a film that's like taking influence from like European art house cinema and like injecting that into porn. And the thing is that that's a legitimate thing that happened at the time. But the movie that they're filming is this really goofy, like almost like a parody you would expect to see in the 90s about like farmer's daughters. It's like such a tropey cliche and has nothing to do with like their artistic ambitions that they're talking about. So that like there's a dissonance between what they're talking about filming and what they're actually filming. And it just plays as like a joke. And that felt very like hack and out of date to me. Like there's a lot of good scholarship about porno films that have been like unappreciated since when they were made and are actually pretty artful. Like we talked about that equation to an unknown restoration on the show before me and Boomer. So like to treat that as a joke that like someone would want to make artful pornography just felt very like old hat. And then, you know, all the vintage grindhouse stuff feels very rote and just like outdated too. And I don't know. I I've failed to be like impressed by the whole thing. It's a shame. Cause you know, it's a draw for me is definitely like Mia goth here. And you know, the premise sounded interesting, but like basic, slashery so to find out it's also you know hacking on the grindhouse sort of thing it's just like i don't know house of a thousand corpses was in 2003 has anyone done anything with that throwback since then that's really changed what rob zombie was doing there i I know better films have been made in that aesthetic since then but like is there anything left to say or do like it feels like a crutch that people are like afraid of setting something in the modern era that pushes buttons the way that grindhouse films did so like it just feels like an easy context to make this kind of like uncomfortable film stuff in so like i don't know i'm I'm much more impressed by something like cam that will use like sex work terror like controversial topics and like set it in the era that we actually live in it feels like riskier to me like people might make fun of it more quickly it's very earnest and like actually trying to do something genuine Whereas like something like X, it just feels like the nostalgic aesthetic throwbacks are just, I don't know, cowardly in a way. This is not a popular take, though. I feel like most people really like this movie and I'm kind of being harsh for no reason. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's funny, you know, because I feel like if like you were to write this down, it would be like your thing. Unfortunately, I have a take. Uh, Never a good thing. I should stop that behavior. (laughs) No, no, you should have a take. That's what this is for, right? And I went to the theater as well to see what is so far the best movie I've seen in 2022, uh, as far as new releases go. I went to see RRR, which is uh, the new action epic from the director of Bahubali 1 and 2. And I know, Boomer, you're a big fan of Bahubali, right? Boy, I sure am. I'm excited to see that. Um, I never set aside the time to it because it's like a full day <laughs> to watch both of those movies. Yeah. I think combined, they're like five or six hours long. I don't know if we've ever talked about this, but I saw Bahubali 2 first. And <laughs> that is I so strange. was on a date with someone who worked at the Alamo Draft House, and they had worked during 
the first one they had worked through Bahubali one. So the idea was that we would just go see Bahubali two. And if there was anything I didn't understand, uh, it would be explained to me. However, as it turns out, when you are working at the Alamo draft house as a server or runner, and the film is not in English, you perhaps do not absorb as much of the movie as you might assume. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I even saw the new one, RRR. I saw that um, in a Hindi dub. So, like, the actors were speaking in Telugu, and then the dub was in Hindi, and then I was reading English subtitles. So there's definitely, like, a cultural and language barrier there. That movie is going to be the Rosetta Stone after me. <laughs> but I reference this all the time. Like, I feel like mainstream, big-budget Indian action films are the most entertaining ticket you can buy to a theater right now. Like, I always leave them fully satisfied. It reminds me of, like, Hong Kong action movies in the 80s when they had that, like, brief period where, like, every oh, fucking yeah. movie felt like a masterpiece. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's that's the stuff. <laughs> this one is about two unlikely friends. Uh, one is a kind of leader of, a, like, a local rural tribe who um, one of the children has been purchased against her parents' will from these, like, British colonialists. This is 1920s India. Um, and they bring the girl back to Delhi, and the tribe leader goes on a one-man, like, Schwarzenegger-style mission to get this girl back and bring her back to her village. Uh, the other friend in this unlikely duo is a cop who is working with the British colonialists, and they bond even though the cop is supposed to be looking for this tribe leader who they know is, like, on this covert mission. So undercover, this cop... And undercover, this like revolutionary become really good buds. And the entire movie is about how awesome their friendship is. And then eventually how they join forces to overthrow the British colonists in the most violent, over-the-top ways possible. Like flaming horse carriages, flaming motorcycles, uh, just unleashed wild animals at this like British tea party, like tigers and leopards and uh, <laughs> bears. Oh my! <laughs> it is so fun and has great politics. Like every white person in this movie is a sneering piece of shit, and you love to see them get exploded and um, ripped to shreds. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> All the things you would expect out of like a big budget Indian film too, like lots of great dance sequences, some romance. It had Aliyah Bhatt, who I really liked in Gangabai Katawadi and in Gully Boy. I've talked about both of those movies in the show before. I was cool to see her again. But really, it was just about these two buds being good buds and then taking down an evil uh, colony, <laughs> imperialist colony in the uh, most passionate throes of their friendship. And I found it to be more entertaining than any movie I've seen so far this year. So highly recommend it. It seems like Netflix might be their streaming partner as it was with Bahubali. So maybe it'll eventually be on there. But um, I especially recommend seeing it in a theater because it is such a like energy pumping, like uh, <laughs> good time. It make, like it, it's literally just prompting you to cheer at all of the explosive mayhem from scene to scene. <laughs> Had a blast. What have y'all been watching? I can safely say not much except Bridgerton season two. 
which I will take a moment briefly to talk about since I know everybody cares about my Bridgerton, Bridgerton feelings. Uh, <laughs> this season is a lot better than the first, and that is to be expected because the first season was based off of the worst Bridgerton book. Uh, but this one's like really fun. It's very, you know, like it has more of a... I don't want to say like Pride and Prejudice vibe, but it does more than the first season. So, you know, it's not as like scandalous, raunchy, sexy, but... Yeah, there was not a lot of sex this season. No. Maybe two sex scenes? Yeah, there's not. And it is great. I love it. It's seven episodes of like people antagonistically flirting with each other and being doofuses, uh, which, you know... I liked in the book too. So yeah, I was a big fan. The music choices this season are just great. Loved it. CC was in the middle of that show when I went to go see RRR. Uh-huh. So like in the theater when they were having these like um violent dance-offs where like the two Indian men were challenging white boys in the British colony to like dance for women's affection. I was just like, "Oh, this is just like Bridgerton but with more explosions." Yes. Uh, <laughs> Even though I was off by a couple centuries, yeah. uh, <laughs> timeline-wise. Except in uh, Bridgerton, it's, you know, reverse because the female lead this time is of Indian, British Indian. True, so, true. Yeah. Uh, she's amazing. I love her. I That's the thing about this show, too, is just everyone's so gorgeous. It's, you know, just one of those shows. I don't know. I keep talking about how I'm going to rewatch the season, actually how it might just become like my new comfort TV. Like once again, I'm going to bring it up, but watch out 1994 Pride and Prejudice. Like, I'm sorry. You <laughs> might be usurped. <laughs> so yeah. Uh, Boomer, I'm sure you've been watching things that aren't Bridgerton. I've been very busy. I want to go ahead and say right now, since I already sort of outed myself as a person who goes to the Alamo draft house, that it would be a really great time for the Draft House uh, to recognize Draft House United, uh, the union that they are attempting to form at the South Lamar location in Austin, Texas, um, especially because I'm about to mention uh, the Draft House again. When we last spoke, um, I talked about uh, going to see Licorice Pizza, and one of the advertisements, advertisements that they had before the movie was for a film series of like rowdy screenings that they were going to do or like movie party kind of thing, which I've been to before. I went to a rowdy screening of Hustlers and I went to a movie party screening of talk, uh, Stop Making Sense, uh, the Talking Heads concert movie. And what they are promoting right now is a sort of movie party for all of the movies that are kind of similar to or maybe visually referenced in or similar um, theoretically to licorice pizza or just about music so i realized after we saw this advertisement that matt had not seen any of these movies he had not seen almost famous uh he had not seen josie and the pussycats and he had not seen pop star never stop never stopping and i won't talk about pop star very much because i've written about it before but we did watch that, and he had mixed feelings about it because he kind of didn't really understand a lot of the, at the time, relevant references that were being made. 
like specifically the references to behaviors that like Macklemore was doing or that Justin Bieber was doing in 2015, 2016 when that was being produced. That Macklemore joke is sublime, though. Well, there's multiple ones. Which one for you? Though? The virtue signaling, uh, not gay anthem. Yeah, there's that one. And whenever Sarah Silverman uh, takes Andy Samberg out to see uh, his former bandmate's performance, and he's like, oh, I have to put on my disguise. And she says, you look like Jewish propaganda. That's like an actual like thing that Macklemore once wore. Like, there are pictures <laughs> you can do with that. For some reason, the you look like Jason Siegel line in that riff um, broke me the first time I saw it in the theater. I was crying laughing. Oh, it's very good. It's very good. There are jokes in that movie that I think about constantly. I think about, you know, the sun can still burn you through the clouds, dummy, uh, is one that I think <laughs> about constantly. Or, or their TMZ parody with Chelsea Peretti and Eric Andre and Joe Bluth, Will Arnett, where they're just, they get more and more deranged as the film goes on. With their giant sippy cups. It's cinema. It's cinema. <laughs> and I know that we have not talked about this before, but I'm going to go ahead, roll the dice, and assume that this is a very Josie and the Pussycats friendly crowd. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. All time great. Agreed. I don't know if we have copy for that movie on the site. I don't know if we have a review of it on the site. But if we don't, I think I might write one. I'm going to give it five stars. I'm going to use the camp stamp for the first time <laughs> since the Obama presidency. God, I, I don't think any of us use that anymore. I should yeah. probably pull that out for Psycho Ape as well. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that we maybe just stopped differentiating. But I will say yeah, Josie and the Pussycats is a, is a camp stamp classic. Matt was very pleased with it. I was very excited by Parker Posey in this because I'm going to be talking about her again in a minute. But I was like, oh, you think that this is Parker Posey at her best? You just wait, uh, young man. I had the horrifying experience of having to explain the concept of Ernest to him oh, not too long ago. <laughs> um, but yeah, so we watched Josie and the Pussycats. Truly a classic. What a star-studded cast. I do know there's an actor from it that shows up in the um, main slasher we're talking about today that I could not place. Like, I could not figure out where I knew this motherfucker from. And it was from Josie and the Pussycats. Yeah, it's it's Gabriel (laughs) Mann from Josie and the Pussycats. (laughs) And the Sarah Michelle Gellar television program, Revenge. Never seen a second of that. Nor have I. And you know what? I could be wrong. He might not be in that. I could be be straight up lying right now. I'll also go ahead and briefly say that we watched Fire, The Greatest Party That Never Happened, the Netflix documentary, which Mm -hmm. uh, I wrote about then, and it ended up, you know, it and its Hulu counterpart both ended up on my end of the year list that year. And I think that it does hold up. I think that the two films are better in conversation with one another than they are on their own. But Matt had also never seen that, and... He didn't really seem interested because he was like, oh, you know, you kind of know what happens. But once I explained that it kind of has a very uh, Queen of Versailles level energy to it. And it's like mockery of these duped people. He was much more on board. I will go ahead and say that I briefly say that I watched a sci-fi thriller starring Numi Rapace called What Happened to Monday. Have either of you heard about this? I have heard of this movie. 
Is it good? <laughs> Tell us about it. Um, I think that it is fine. Uh, Brandon, it doesn't seem like you've heard about it. So the concept is that Numi Rapace is, she plays seven different sisters who are identical, identical septuplets, essentially. And each one of them is named after a day of the week. And they were born in a world where families are limited to one child. And in fact, there seems to have been some kind of like introduction of a medical program to increase fertility that like was overzealous. And now people are constantly having like multiple births, uh, which is actually relatively, you know, I don't, I'm sorry. I don't need to mansplain to our audience that humans generally have single children, but um, (laughs) they, each have one day that they go out into the world and it's the day that shares their name. And one day Monday doesn't come home. So they have to figure out how to discern what happened to their sister. And it becomes part of a much bigger minority report style, political intrigue sort of thing. It's fine. Um, I don't know that I think it's the greatest thing I've ever seen, but if you are just looking for kind of like a, if you like Minority Report and you haven't seen a movie like Minority Report since that one came out or since Paycheck with Ben Stiller, then maybe you'll enjoy what happened to Monday. So correct me if I'm wrong, but this is another one of those that Netflix just dropped and then we never heard about again, right? Uh, yeah that's what i thought (laughs) and to round it out uh in the past six days matt and i have watched screams one two and three we watched scream on one day and then we watched 1997's scream two the next day and then waited a day and then watched scream three to sort of like uh experience in microcosm the weight between those movies for people who uh, had to live through them like we did in real time. (laughs) (laughs) I think that this is a mostly Scream apathetic zone, correct? I don't know about that. I haven't seen them since I was a child, like way too young to see them, and then like horrified by them. So I'm not apathetic. I just, everything that I know of is just being horrified and being like i don't want to watch this but it's on tv i guess that's that's it um you know childhood memories i really liked the first one it meant a lot to me as a teenager um i i don't think it's as smart as i thought it was at the time really but uh i still really like it and it obviously influenced a lot of movies that i liked as a kid because there was that brief period of time where like it basically created a little micro industry of like all the hottest stars you know gloomily <laughs> posing to the new metal soundtrack of the of the week which is interesting because it does not have a new metal soundtrack itself but you are right right that most <laughs> of the post scream slashers do and i was kind of worried last night tipping my hand too much by posting that image in the discord channel but i'm glad that nobody even looked at it But this is sort of a brief list of what I would consider to be sort of the Scream imitators or the Scream followers and their release dates. Uh, Because, you know, Scream is is like Halloween for the 90s, but self-aware. 
And then it spawned this, like you said, cottage industry. And I don't know that every single one of these would really be. I put asterisks next to some of them because I definitely want to get into how the movie that we're discussing tonight is in conversation with Scream more clearly than some of the other Scream imitators were. And how this actually, even though it didn't get the, I'm sure we'll get into this, the releases or the theatrical release that it really deserved. Its release date was in October of 2000, which was like not even four years after Scream. And in a way, it kind of puts a nail in the Scream coffin. Um, although I put Joyride on this list because I think that there is an element of Scream in that one as well, even if it was kind of a latecomer. Also, nothing really replaced that wave until the mid-2000s when they had all those, like, Platinum Dune remakes. Oh, you're getting to page three of my notes already. (laughs) Um, But I I do want to talk more about how all these, you know, the conversation that is being had between the films in this genre, other ones that we have talked about before, I kind of want to get a a gauge for everybody's feelings about them. But briefly, quickly, I'll say, I actually... I feel like Scream gets smarter every time I do see it. There were even things that I hadn't noticed before. Like, you know, it's been almost 30 years, so I will, you know, uh, spoilers for Scream, I guess. But, you know, it's sort of an open secret now that Scream's big twist is that there are two killers. But I kind of forget how well that's woven into the text of the film, like, both as foreshadowing and as like subtext. Like there's the scene where Henry Winkler's uh, principal character is uh, reprimanding the two boys who've been running around the school with the ghost face masks on. And it's specifically two boys. It's, which is actually, you know, it's like, there's a lot of subtlety going on. And I think that there's a lot of that in Scream 2 as well. Scream 2 even kind of expands that a little more. Because, you know, Randy, when he's talking about the new rules, kind of explicitly calls out exactly what the solution is going to be. He just doesn't realize it in the moment. See, this is where you start to lose me because I have no relationship to the sequels whatsoever. Oh. I plan on correcting that. So you have not seen Scream 2. I maybe saw it once as like a VHS rental, but I I have no recollection of seeing 3 or 4. I definitely haven't seen 5 because it just came out. Oh, man. Well... I kind of, <laughs> I kind of wanted to discuss some of the elements of Scream Two and the foreshadowing of it there, but I guess we'll hold off until after you've watched it. <laughs> You're gonna be holding off a, a long time. I think that's my Halloween plan is to correct that. Oh, uh, blind oh my spot. goodness! Uh, well, we'll figure it out regardless. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> um, uh, well, and then of course we watched Scream Three, which was released in February of 2000 eight months before cherry falls and it's actually surprising how much scream three and cherry falls have in common especially and particularly in the way that scream three the fact that it has as a core part of its narrative the like casting couch element of hollywood really gives the lie to the idea that like me too is calling out something that people didn't know about. Like it's clearly something that we actually did know about movies. were talking about this like 22 years ago. And even before then, a Harvey Weinstein produced movie, no less. Yes. A Harvey Weinstein produced series of films. And 
I think that there actually might be something to say about the extent to which the narrative may actually be addressing him directly in Scream 3 that I guess we'll have to wait until October to talk about, but I will still <laughs> I'm be I'm so excited. sorry. <laughs> um, I will say that upon reflection, I always thought of Scream 3 as the worst one, and it is. Like, you know, it is the bottom of the barrel uh, for me, but... I guess I shouldn't say bottom of the barrel. It's the bottom of the pile, but it's not the worst film. It's actually better than I remembered it being. There are problems with it. Uh, there are ways that it does not stick to sort of the elements that I think make Scream the film series that it is. There's even like a dream sequence and a couple of, or like a nightmare sequence that happens that Sydney experiences in Scream 3, which I think really breaks sort of the film series because this was a series of movies in which you never saw anything from that kind of perspective. There were, I wouldn't call it documentarian, but you never went into a character's perspective. It was always sort of like non omniscient third person. And I think that there are things in scream three like that. uh, Some of the choices that are made that make it not a very good screen sequel. And there are also elements in the movie that I think make it not a very interesting horror movie in general, but it definitely was better than I remember. And I think one of my biggest problems with it was also my biggest problem with the most recent sequel that came out earlier this year, which is that it takes way too long for Sydney to get involved. Sydney doesn't show up until like the 40, well, there are scenes of Sydney in her home, but she doesn't actually reunite with gail and dewey into like 45 minutes in it's a really long period of time before the crew is together and that was my problem with five as well and i think that that's just maybe that's just a me thing but i really want to talk about how scream as a series and its imitators and followers are in conversation with our main discussion point tonight so brandon why don't you take us away There's so many levels to this. I don't think you could even say, I don't think you could call it a, a horror movie. Because I think it's just a, it's a movie. It's a story. And it has, it has so many layers of different uh, emotions and wackiness. It's by far the funniest one that I read. It's so different from any of the other movies, in my opinion, of its genre that have floated in front of my face in the past couple of years. And I thought, oh, this is cool. <laughs> this one I actually want to be a part of. Well, we are talking about a post-Scream teen slasher today from 2000. A movie that I've been wanting to see for a long time, mostly because it stars Brittany Murphy, who I love. I love her. And also it's a movie with like a very spotty distribution history. Cherry Falls was supposed to be theatrically released in 2000, but... Because of its sexual material, the MPAA basically would not approve any cut of the film. And instead, it went Whoa. straight to the USA Network um, in America. Anyway, in, in Europe, it played in some theaters. And um, since the early 2000s, since it like broadcast on that network and then had an out-of-print DVD around that era, it's just been gone. Like Unless you taped it off the TV or bought that first um, run of DVDs, it's just been impossible to access. Uh, so, you know, besides Brittany Murphy, it's inaccessibility and it's like sexual content. 
um, has been something, you know, that makes it kind of a draw. And all of a sudden, it is suddenly on Shudder in a scan that looks like it's from the same standard definition master from back then. But, you know, that's fine. How it was meant to be seen, right? (laughs) I read somewhere that it was like the most expensive television film of all time because it was never meant for television. It was like 14 million. I also read that, but (laughs) I have heard that same thing be said of Theodore Rex because it also was supposed to be a theatrical release that ended up premiering on television because of all of its production problems. That's what I've always been told was the most expensive one. So now I don't know who to trust. Maybe they have the exact same production budget down to a, down to the dollar. <laughs> so there's no way to like get one over on the other. Yeah. If Whoopi or um, Michael Bean had either one of them had taken an ice cold Coca-Cola offset, we'd have a different <laughs> answer. <laughs> That's in my notes, right? Yep. Because Gabriel Mann is not the only star of Josie and the Pussycats that shows up in this movie. The product placement of these Coca-Cola products was so extensive. There was so much Coca-Cola, Sprite, and Diet Coke labeled a camera. I was like, God, I really could stand to be refreshed right now. (laughs) But it is kind of easy to see, like, why the MPAA would be prudish about this movie. Basically, it is critiquing a trope of, like, the first wave slashers, the way that Scream sort of collected all the tropes. This one just focuses on one, which is that um, in most slasher films from the first wave, uh, you know, the people who have sex are immediately killed, and then the virgin is the final girl survivor. Um, In this one, it flips it around so that um, there's a serial killer on the loose who only kills virgins, so that um, the parents in this small town in Virginia... (laughs) <laughs> have this like question put on them like what i rather my kid be sexually active or dead is kind of the question that all these parents <laughs> have to contend with Brittany murphy has a harder time than most in shedding her virginity because her father is an over controlling small town sheriff but uh even he is conflicted he's like should i be encouraging my kid to have sex so that she's not killed it turns out it doesn't matter because the serial killer has it out for him in particular Uh, for a past wrong that he committed as a teenager himself. And um, all of the sex stuff is kind of like a ruse to um, call attention to a past rape that happened um, when the sheriff and the principal and the parents were in high school um, long before their kids were even born. We can talk about a lot of things here. We could definitely get into more plot details if you want to. Um, We could talk about Brittany Murphy's very strange relationship with her father, which uh, gives some very uncomfortable incest vibes several times. Yeah. Um. (laughs) Or even her apparent crush on her potential half-brother. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) The incest is strong. And I would say just generally, the movie tries to touch on as many sexual taboos as it can. Um, and it crosses the line into offensive in several major ways. Are you telling me that in that scene where the killer comes to the lodge where everyone's having the orgy and they're all trying to flee and collapsing on each other out, down, going down the stairs, that you, Brandon Lede, were not in your home shouting shunt, shunt, shunt? <laughs> Do you mean to tell me that? You know, apparently there's a um, harder cut of the film where those kids were like, more naked and sexually active that um, the director no longer has a copy of. Oh, so no. like Shout Factory, when they were um, re 
issuing this um, really wanted to put out the unedited like original cut and it is just lost to studio meddling for all time. So that shunt could have been even more explicit and fleshy than it was. But the thing I really want to start on though, is, you know, all these like post scream slashers were heavily influenced by Kevin Williamson, who like wrote a bunch of the ones that (laughs) were made after scream. He was kind of like ripping himself off a little bit for a little while there. And what I think is interesting about this is I think it's actually the least Kevin Williamson, inspired film from that wave it actually reminded Mm. me a lot more of heathers um, and daniel waters script for that film than it did of kevin williamson's writing i have that in my notes as well the jokes are very like proto diablo cody post heathers like somewhere in that middle ground and um i just found that interesting especially when it comes to the orgy where the kids are trying to protect themselves by all losing their virginity at the same time reminded me a lot of daniel waters's original ending to Heathers when they basically all commit suicide at the same time and have an after party in heaven, except Daniel Waters' script was never filmed. And in this case, this crazy motherfucker, <laughs> Jeffrey Wright, um, not the Jeffrey Wright you're thinking of, a different guy, uh, he actually got to film his teenage orgy um, and was punished by it by having his movie buried forever. Uh, <laughs> I really liked this movie. What did y'all think of it, especially in relation to Heathers, which I think is like the big thing that's hanging over it for me? Well, I think that they make that comparison textual in the film, because I don't know if you noticed, but the most Heathers-like scene for me, a professional fan of Heathers, (laughs) was the scene in which uh, Jay Moore is leading his classroom in a discussion about how they feel about the death of the two students who were killed in the opening. Yes. And it follows very closely on, you know, the meeting with the principal where he says, oh, I've canceled all classes. It's very, it's it's just lacking that comedy beat from Heathers where he's like, damn, you know, I would have gone a, a half a day for a cheerleader. But <laughs> in that scene, the character who they talked to first about this, her name is Heather. <laughs> he calls on her and he says and then she talks and he's like thank you heather so it is like in the text of the film that it's that it is cribbing from heathers and relating to it yeah i just felt like the tone too like yeah the tone you know there are ways in which this movie is morally offensive <laughs> that we could get into but um i think i think for the most part just the very jokey script the overwritten zingers from the kids it just felt very in line with like the Heather spirit in a way that I really connected yeah. to. I think that that combined with sort of like the year 2000 aesthetic gave it more of a Buffy feel to me, but I get where you're coming from. Yeah, I, I could definitely see that as well. Um, the thing that like really got me first, though, is, you know, the first like few scenes feel very like direct reference to Twin Peaks as well. Because you've got the, like, falls, and you've got, like, the girl, and, like, being zipped in the body bag. I don't know. It was just one of those moments where I was like, oh, we Twin Peaksing now? The final shot where the waterfall turns cherry red, I feel like would have been in Twin Peaks The Return instead of the original series. (laughs) Yes, it would. Somehow it did David Lynch would find that shot very funny. Uh Uh-huh. It's interesting, because Heather's was something I I did notice, but it wasn't, it didn't... I didn't feel that way through the whole thing. To me, 
And of course it would, right? The thing that it felt like it was most in conversation with was it's sort of like the way that Scream is the Halloween, the self-aware Halloween for the 90s. It felt like this was the self-aware Nightmare on Elm Street for the 90s. And specifically in the way that it was positing itself as sort of like the anti-Scream. Because just like with Nightmare on Elm Street, we have the big push from the killer is vengeance, right? And specifically, it's vengeance against the teenagers whose parents parents committed the crime in the past. Our lead, her father, is a law enforcement officer, just like in Nightmare on Elm Street. And it posits itself sort of as an anti-scream, both in large, like sort of macrocosmically and microcosmically, right? Because you have Michael Bean's sort of law enforcement character posited against sort of the David Arquette Dewey character in Scream. And like the whole point of Scream is that it boils down to something that happened with Sydney's mom. And specifically, it becomes preoccupied as a series with Maureen Prescott's sexuality to the point where that becomes a driving force behind more than just the first film. When it comes back around to the third one, it's an element in that one as well. And you sort of see how both of them are these mothers who are posited against each other, which is sort of fascinating to me because Craven directed Nightmare on Elm Street and Scream and Nightmare on Elm Street also has this weird relationship with motherhood when it comes to Freddy's origins in Dream Warriors and when it comes to Alice's pregnancy with the dream child in Nightmare on Elm Street 5. So there's a lot going on with mothers. In Scream, the boyfriend is at first sort of a sex pest, and then he eventually gets what he wants. In this one, the boyfriend is a sex pest, but then he decides not to take advantage of the situation when he's given the opportunity. And one of the things that I thought was most interesting, like, and most explicit is at the very beginning of Scream, when Casey Beckett, uh, who is Drew Barrymore's uh, parents come home, the door is ajar and it is an immediate cause for alarm for them. And when the girl who is murdered while her parents are out to dinner, when her parents come home, they find the door open and they do not break their sort of like drunken, jovial stride. It isn't until they get inside and they're like, oh, things have been disrupted that they become worried. So I think that it's positing itself as sort of a postmodern Nightmare on Elm Street that takes place in sort of a semi-realistic world as opposed to having a dream demon. But it's also in conversation with Scream as the anti-Scream down to the first rule is don't have sex to the first rule is get laid soon so that you live. (laughs) I think it also just has more going on than Scream. That's not a good way to say it. It's just like Scream basically what its influence was on other films to me is just like everyone suddenly knows that they're in a horror movie and like are self-aware of the situation. It's kind of like an early Deadpool application of the genre um, that I think is kind of like shallow the more you do it. And here the movie's like specifically playing with discomfort around teenage sexuality in a way that I've found more rewarding than just the idea of, just collecting and pointing out genre tropes. Like it picks that one trope, the virginity trope to mess with. And then it really digs into it 
like like that that scene you were just referencing with the boyfriend who like as soon as Brittany Murphy is enthusiastic about having sex and um she goes really hard into it yeah. she's like she sure yeah. does <laughs> she, she gets sure right into does. like feet and pain foreplay with him and he's like oh you're actually genuinely excited about this i'm not pursuing you and talking you into it this intimidates me as a teenage boy um i'm gonna back out yeah <laughs> you can't handle her like enthusiasm um i feel like that was actually like playing with something uh, especially that really whole, uncomfortable that whole girl conversation about yeah how useless boys are <laughs> basically so good <laughs> you have to put it in for them don't even think about trying to have an orgasm it's not gonna happen <laughs> they're not gonna it's know cruel, how to take but... off a bra yeah and then it immediately cuts to the boys having the most like mouth breathing idiotic conversation about like female anatomy yeah <laughs> like just like really proving her point immediately after I don't know. I'm, I'm just not surprised this this was the one that people decided was too hot for cinemas. Uh, apparently hot enough for TV. Yeah, what? That's the part that doesn't make sense to me at all. Like, Yeah, more people can access it. Yeah, what did the television <laughs> cut of this even look like? It's what I want to know. Oh, it's the version you watched. What? It was on cable TV. Oh my god. Yeah. I read that and it made some things make sense. Like, no one ever says fucking in this movie. That's true. Whenever, at the beginning, Annette is beating up her boyfriend for... Um, Oh, you're right. This is very Heathersy. Lying about getting a blowjob. <laughs> she keeps saying, you know, they keep calling each other cocksucker, and she says, You sucking sucker. <laughs> and it would make sense that it had been edited for television, which is strange because there is like AFAB nudity in the morgue, which would yeah. generally be either, you know, blurred out on television or, you know, cropped out through some sort of like blocking on set. I do feel like there were other things that I wrote down here in my notes about specific post scream. I don't want to call them ripoffs. Some of them are, and some of them are not, but they're scream inspired films. And I noticed how often necking in the woods comes up in them, even though it's not in scream and specifically both this one and disturbing behavior start with characters necking in a car. I know that's not what the children call it these days. It's not what <laughs> I was going to say. Uh, yeah, it's not really. I mean, I love it. It's a great term, but yeah. I think that's appropriate to what they're referencing, though, because like that's an old 50s B-movie trope, right? And they even start right. kind of goofing off about alien invasion stuff at the start of this one. Yeah. It happens in this one. At the very beginning, it starts disturbing behavior, and it happens in urban legend as well. And I think that that's really interesting, because it's like, even though all of these movies that followed Scream, they're all still tapping into this great well of genre fiction, of genre mythology and genre imagery, even if it wasn't specifically in the film that kind of started this movement. I did want to point out that I loved that just like the faculty, this one has a sort of terror in the high school element, a teacher played by a comedian, and a Terminator alumnus. <laughs> <laughs> who's who's the Terminator person? Michael Bean. Oh, uh, okay, yeah. There would be no Terminator without him. Oh, yeah! So, we kind of touched on this briefly at the beginning, but I put into our group chat here sort of a list of movies that I think 
immediately followed Scream and their release dates. So we have Scream in December of 96. And I Know What You Did Last Summer comes out less than a year later. It's October 97. And in fact, Scream 2 premieres a, a year and a week after the original Scream, like rushed into production. Do we have feelings about I Know What You Did Last Summer as a group? When I watched that in the theater, I had the greatest time of my life. And then the lights came up after the end credits, and I looked over to my dad and my stepmother, who had graciously taken me to the theater to see it. And my dad said in the gravest voice I've ever heard, you never get to pick the movie again. (laughs) Completely (laughs) (laughs) stone-faced. That's so good. That one stuck with it's me. It's another one that I haven't seen since it came out. So, Or came out and was yeah, on TV, rather. Yeah, I feel like I've seen I Know What You Did last summer on television probably like six or seven times. And they usually do it in a block with I Still Know What yeah. You Did last summer. So they can have like yep. an entire afternoon of programming. But I Know What You Did last summer was October 97. And I still know what you did last summer was barely a year later in November 1998. And in between those two, three other Scream-inspired horror movies were released. You have Disturbing Behavior in 1998, which is basically um, The Stepford Wives as a teen horror, right? And then you have Urban Legend, which is not good, but is a personal favorite of mine when it comes to Scream ripoffs that came out in September of 1998. Um, do we have thoughts on Urban Legend? Literally every one of these movies is going to be the same for me. Enjoyed it as a blockbuster rental. Remember very little of it because that was 20 years ago or however long. Oh, man. 20 plus. I've never seen it. <laughs> I should have us watch Urban Legend for my next pick because it's not good, but it is a personal <laughs> favorite of mine because Scream 2 has Rebecca Gayhart and so does Urban Legend. And Urban Legend also has Jared Leto for some reason. It's got Michael Rosenbaum. It sort of steals how Scream had Henry Winkler as the principal. Sort of the creepy teacher in Urban Legend is Robert England, because of course it is. And also in this list, I did include Halloween H2O, because this is one that I have an asterisk with, though, because it's it's technically a sequel to a franchise that had been running, but it's sort of like a re-inspiration. It's like obviously Halloween-inspired Scream, but Scream kind of circled back around and reinvigorated this genre that had mostly gone to pot and made it so that a Halloween movie that didn't involve like a weird Celtic cult or a resurrection cult or any other kind of cult could come into being. Because H2O focuses just as much on Josh Hartnett's character and his peers as you know, the new teenagers who are being stalked by Michael Myers. And I think it's 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 actually probably one of that uh, franchise's best sequels. Brandon, I'm going to assume that you saw it when it came out and that you liked it and haven't thought about it since. <laughs> Accurate. <laughs> and I, I included the faculty on here because just as much as Disturbing Behavior is Stepford Wives as a teen horror, the faculty is Invasion of the Body Snatchers as a teen horror. Uh, and then I put Teaching Mrs. Tingle, and I include that one because it's interesting, because Teaching Mrs. Tingle is actually more of a ripoff of I Know What You Did Last Summer. Uh, I don't know if either of you grew up reading any Lois Duncan books. Maybe? What did she do? 
she mostly wrote like young adult thriller melodramas before the young adult genre really existed. So I know what you did last summer is is one of her books, like from the seventies. And then she had a novel uh, entitled "Killing Mr. Griffin," which did have a, a TV adaptation around this time with Amy Jo Johnson that's mostly disappeared from memory. But teaching Mrs. Tingle is basically killing Mr. Griffin, like both in the format of the title and the actual content. And apparently teaching Mrs. Tingle is, was a passion project of Kevin Williamson's that he was trying to sell when he first wrote Scream. And it's interesting because teaching Mrs. Tingle feels more like a ripoff of I Know What You Did Last Summer in the sense that it's following on the heels of a Lois Duncan novel, but it has more of the actual Kevin Williamson prestige uh, because it's actually written by him. He also wrote The Faculty, right? Yes. And then this is where I think it kind of starts to see like the end of this era. It was It was very flash in the pan. I mean, it's very dense, but it only really lasted for four years. In 2000, you have Scream 3 in February. And then in March, you have both Final Destination, which I think was the first of these to be truly like supernatural, which is kind of where you start to see this concept of the reinvigoration of the slasher slasher genre specifically kind of start to fall apart. Because Final Destination is scream-like in that they're literally being pursued by death in the way that like they're sort of metaphorically being like followed by a man in a death costume and scream and of course final destination also has i'm sure that this group knows this but it began its life as an x-file script what i did not, I did know, not that. know that but i love that and it makes so much sense throughout the run of the x-files they talk about scully's uh siblings so she has her older brother who's named after her dad and then she has her sister who dies early on and then the younger brother who i guess she's sort of estranged from like we never see him on screen and in the revival seasons whenever um mrs scully finally passes away references made to trying to get in contact with sam uh the younger brother before she dies and specifically Final Destination was written as a script where Devin Sawa's character was Sam Scully, huh. where he had the the vision of the of the plane, and the script just kept getting more and more complicated until it sort of spun off into its own thing, which became Final Destination. I mean, that's for the best. Uh, I, I'm looking at this list as you're reading through it, and like my enthusiasm for this genre kind of tanked around the time that Teaching Mrs. Tangle came out because I did not watch any yeah. of these below there as a kid but um i did watch final destination with britney recently and we watched like every movie in that franchise and almost all of them were great i was gonna say so like i'm very glad it wasn't an episode of tv they all have something that will scar you for life and make you afraid they all have something that'll make you uncomfortable for the rest of your life be it driving behind death is scary trucks or You can die in so, so many, many stupid, absurd ways, ways every day. Exactly. Uh, that's all I took away from those movies. I was like, I don't like this. This is not good for my anxiety. Everything in the world is a piano perilously dangling above your head while Looney Tunes music plays in the yes. background. <laughs> Our bodies are um, very weak. They are. 
Well, and I think that that inventiveness is sort of what marks a big change from the Scream formula. It's not just that they're aware that they're in some sort of danger. It's that the same way that Urban Legend, I give it points for creativity because instead of it just being like, oh, we're in a horror movie, it's, oh, we are in an urban legend. And the serial killer who is behind all these things is specifically styling their kills after popular urban legends. You know, don't flash your flashers on the highway and oh there's someone in the back seat and oh you know aren't you glad you didn't turn on the light like i think that final destination is also doing that by completely divorcing itself from that sort of postmodern awareness that you're in fiction to sort of a postmodern awareness of <laughs> you're in a body <laughs> oh, no. that's fragile and yeah the the last three on this list I, I i put skulls on here with an asterisk because like teaching mrs tingle and halloween h2o i think that it sort of slides in there just barely because the skulls is not really a horror movie it's more of a thriller but it has all of the hallmarks of this genre of this time because you've got your you know slick joshua jackson just like you have in scream 2 just like you have in urban legend you know, just like you have in uh, Cruel Intentions. Now you know, that's he's cinema. there. Yeah, that's cinema. Uh, but, you know, The Skulls, I feel like, sort of still falls into this grouping, even though it's technically not a slasher. It feels like it's just like a four teens version of this, like four adults, <laughs> not adults, but for older teens uh, genre. And I slipped Joyride in there because I feel like that one has sort of a scream ideology when it comes to the harassing cb calls from the trucker who is stalking them so in the way that cherry falls is like sort of a postmodern nightmare and you know the faculty like we said is the you know 90s teen invasion of the body snatchers joyride is sort of like the 90s the hitcher the hitcher oh my god <laughs> And that is sort of like when this sort of like scream era comes to an end, right? Because when you think about 2000s horror movies, what do you think about? I definitely go straight to those new metal remakes of like Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Nightmare on Elm Street. No one liked that. And all the other ones in between. Yeah. I had a theory and I, I did some digging and I, I my theory was mostly accurate. When I think of the 2000s, I also think of remakes, but I think about torture porn. Oh, yeah. Mm. I try not to think about torture porn. I think a lot of people I don't think about <laughs> zombies, think about torture porn, zombies, a very brief J-horror period, and then, uh, and then remakes, right? So immediately after this era, in 2002, you have 28 Days Later, which is uh, immediately followed by the Dawn of the Dead remake and Shaun of the Dead in 2004, and then Land of the Dead in 2005, which put us in the middle of this like zombie renaissance that we're still living in 20 years later, where there's Ugh. like zombie movies constantly yeah. now. Yeah. Then you also have the fact that Dawn of the Dead is a remake that comes out in 2002. We also have the Ring remake come out in 2002. That's both like a remake and it's J-horror, right? And then that's followed by The Grudge in 04, and then Dark Water in 05, and then One Missed Call in 2008, which seems a little bit late to be on this list, but I know for a fact that they were working on that script as early as 2004, because Juliet Snowden and Styles White, who were working on that remake, her father was a professor at Northwestern when I was going to boarding school up there, and I attended a talk that they did. 
So they were working on it in that 2004 era when I was in school. And then 2002 also gives us Cabin Fever, which isn't really torture porn, but it sort of kickstarts it because it's followed very closely by Saw in 2004, Hostel in 2005, which is also Eli Roth, and Hostel 2 in 2007. But Remake Mania is really starts with that ring. Well, you, I also, I always think about remakes and we all mentioned remakes and it's absolutely true because You've got The Ring in 02, you've got Texas Chainsaw in 2003, and you've got Dawn of the Dead in 04. And that kicks it off. Because, I mean, you've got Amityville and House of Wax in 2005. That one's fun. You've got Hill House in 06. You've got the Halloween remake, the Rob Zombie one in 07. <laughs> and then Friday the 13th in 09 and Nightmare on Elm Street in 2010. It really was just all remakes for the entirety of like our teen years, our teenage into young adulthood. I basically zoned out for most of that. And I feel like that era has like negatively impacted horror as a genre in most people's minds. So that when you hear people being like, yeah, Get Out's actually good. It's not a horror film. It's a good movie. Uh, it's because they're comparing it against Hostel and Saw and stuff like that. And that's, yeah, that's not even talking about all the bloody Valentines and Willards and toolbox murders in between. Like there's so many. Yeah, I feel like that era has been a detriment to horror and just it's like public reputation to the point where people are still apologizing for making horror movies. You have like John Krasinski yeah. saying that I didn't make a horror movie, I made a good movie. Or like uh, he did, the elevated horror the thing. And <laughs> I did not yeah. It's like, like that, that Vonnegut <laughs> quote about... <laughs> it's fine. Like that Vonnegut quote about the science fiction uh, bookshelf always being mistaken for a urinal. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, I feel like the, the genre's just been kind of recovering from that era because it was bad. <laughs> but there's some yeah. good gems in there, just from the list you named. There's some fun movies hiding in that dreck. Yeah. Well, if we are going to bring up one more topic to dive into, I feel like we could do a spoilerly reveal of the killer and what tropes that I plays into. I think that we should because... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that we should because I have here in my notes, transphobia. <laughs> I was just so thinking, let's, like, let's Psycho, which is also, like, queer coding of villains and crazy people, so, yeah. There are reasons why the transphobic reveal in this does not bother me as much as it does in other films, but I cannot speak with any authority about what this specific example does and how it plays into a much larger trend and how it doesn't matter if it's any better or worse than any other examples because it's just, like, part of a larger continuum. <sighs> It feels late more than anything sure. else. It's about 15 years too late to get like a De Palma exception. Honestly, that's almost part of the reason it doesn't bother me as much. I mean, as you can already tell from what we're saying, uh, the um, killer in this movie is posing as a woman. And, you know, it's a, it's a male character in drag who's been killing these kids. Because it's so late and that trope is so old by the time it came out, it almost felt like so obvious the first time you see the killer in action that it was like, yeah. oh, that's where they're going with that? Gross. And then by the time <laughs> it's actually revealed, you're like so used to the idea that like I was kind of okay with it. Partly because the reveal is not that Jay Moore's English teacher character has, you know, taken over the persona of his mother the same way that Norman Bates had in the psycho version of this trope, but that he is wearing her costume 
to remind her rapists of what they had done. And it wasn't so much that he was trans. Yeah. He was like bringing back a ghost from the past to punish people. Um, so like by the time I saw why they were doing it, I was less offended than I expected to be. But, you know, obviously it's part of a larger problem. It's not just, you know, specifically contained in this movie. Yeah. I mean, I also thought like past a certain point of like time, the whole like cross-dressing thing has been like, oh, you can tell that they're crazy because of this. Where it's like, that wasn't really brought up for why you could tell he was crazy. <laughs> you know, there wasn't some deep like psychological explanation for well, he likes to dress up like a woman because of this. And so I, it feels in that like there way, is, though. It makes me right? feel better. Because but... when he is having his flashback and he's talking to Michael Bean about how, oh, you know, mother hated me because I looked like you. And there's a flashback to her hitting this child. The child is in a dress. And. I don't know, maybe I'm reading too much into that, but it seems to me that there might have, among all of the other cuts that occurred to the film, it feels like there might have actually been more maybe. of this that might have been more offensive. Maybe. You can really only deal with what you got, though. I didn't even yeah. read that as like feminine clothing. I, I just kind of kids yeah. wear those like nightgown kind of baby doll outfits. Yeah, I didn't. It, it, so. This was, yeah, if it had been a baby or a two-year-old, it would have been different. But this child was three or four, which at that point, it seemed to me that it was like, I don't know. Again, we, we're we're both, we're all looking at a, at a text and interpreting yeah. it, but that is how I interpret it. Yeah, I'm just saying there wasn't like some board of psychologists being like, well, there's this, which in so many of the other movies, like that's what you get, is like a bunch yeah, no, of no mental really health professionals it. being like, "Yep, that's a crazy person." If anything, all of the like condemnation of what has transpired is very focused on the rape that was buried in the past, and like they really dwell on that yes. crime more so than they deal with the retribution of it. Well. There are things about it that seem just so tone deaf in such a 2000s way. Such as the fact that, like, Michael Bean was also sexually assaulted in that flashback. Yes. yes. And there's never a discussion about whether or not he, as a man, could have been victim of that assault as well. I don't know about that. He seems pretty traumatized about being forced to do yeah. that. And then he says, like, after he was forced to do it, he knew what he was doing and didn't stop it. Or um, it sounded like he did actually try to turn them into the cops, but... I mean, he has been long traumatized by that incident, I think. Yeah. No one else seems bothered by it but him. Yeah, I guess that's true. The The principal, for sure, does not seem to have any regrets, even when it's, like, resulting in the death of students and he knows it. Yeah. I'm going to be honest, though. Like, in general, I struggle with this trope because I know that, you know, it's one of the things that, like, leads to real-life violence against trans women. Yeah. Um, in particular. So it is, like, objectively an evil thing that, like, mass media does. But also, I'm a lifelong cross-dresser. <laughs> and um, growing up with these kinds of movies, it was always, like, <laughs> kind of perversely thrilling to see people cross-dressing in films in any context. And I know that if I had seen this as a 13-year-old, I would have been like, whoa! <laughs> um, so, like, I've openly indulged in this thing that I know is actively bad throughout my entire life. I don't know what to do with that feeling because <laughs> I know it is like 
objectively evil. I mean, I think there's a difference between blindly enjoying media and enjoying media and being like, oh, well, this is messed up, but... Yeah. There's a difference between enjoying it and enjoying it critically, you know? Like, thinking about, like, oh, well, this is a problem. Like, obviously, that doesn't work in all situations, but... Yeah. The world would be a better place if that was not the only representation of people, like, cross-dressing in movies, and the world would be a better place if that never happened at all. Uh, I can acknowledge both of those things, but this is definitely the kind of thing that if I had seen it on television, I would have taped it onto my, like, VHS compilations that I was making of, like, instances of this kind of, like body swap, gender fuckery that you would pop up on sitcoms or like TV shows and stuff um, as a kid. It would have excited me that, that that this trope happened. Yeah. Even though he's not he's not very femme, like he, he basically looks like Trent Reznor and he's just wearing like his mom's wig. Um, maybe some pantyhose. Neopons. I was surprised by the reveal. You were surprised? You didn't see that coming? No. At the beginning of this movie, I did not see a man I in a dress. it was the mom fascinating and Mm. then once we find out like that the dad is rapist i was like oh well yeah i guess it could still be the mom there were moments where i thought it might have been britney murphy oh yeah (laughs) where i was like well especially in the scene where she's like seducing her boyfriend because she's so aggressive about it i'm like oh my god are we is she about to like kill this man (laughs) i think that for me personally i think i would have enjoyed it more if, and I don't know, maybe I'm saying something about myself and maybe I'm exposing something about myself. I would have liked it more if the child of this assault had been a daughter who had been posing as a male teacher and then revealing that she was really a woman while performing the killings. That's at least a complication and not yeah. just like the same tired old trope. Yeah. I mean, I'm into that. Yeah. You know. It goes all the way back to Psycho, but it's in everything. It's in, you know, Silence of the yep. Lambs. <laughs> it's it's in Death Spa. So, you know, it's something that it's part of a larger conversation. And I don't think that it's necessarily to the film's detriment the way that uh, I think I've seen it be to the film's detriment definitely in other things. But I think this, that now is as good a time as any to recommend the documentary Disclosure. Uh, which you can watch on Netflix. And I also think that there's a very interesting conversation in the uh, YouTube documentary. I think it's called the pop culture roots of transphobia. That was a collaboration between Lindsay Ellis and ContraPoints um, that I think is also worth a look for our listeners who are interested in learning more about the relationship between this trope, which um, can be harmful for some, and possibly liberating for others. Whatever you know, perverse thrill I get out of that trope um, personally does not outweigh any of its like real world harm. And I felt even bad for bringing it up, but uh, it is true that that's how I watch movies. <laughs> <laughs> it has been like my entire life. Uh, probably something I should work towards. I think it's the same correcting. thing of like you know women enjoying watching movies where mentally ill women are like unstable villains where you're like oh i'm seeing myself on screen you go girl you know like (laughs) it's it's hard because it's like at the same time this is totally not good but at the other i mean that's also one of the few instances where you get to see women transgress and like yeah exactly like like step outside the bounds of like respectable behavior it's much more fun to cheer sharon stone on in um 
basic instinct than it is to, you know, cheer on a virtuous housewife who, like, stays out of the conflict. So, I thought this movie was fun and great until we got to that ending. That ending left a real bad taste in my mouth. The slaughter at the uh, orgy? No, no, not that. That was a blast. But, <laughs> no, <laughs> the uh, the um, not disclosing the reasons for why. Like, not talking about the rape at all. It just felt like, okay, let's contribute to this problem further. Oh, yeah. Whenever she and her mom just lie to the FBI. Yeah, like lying to the FBI and not saying, like, yeah, here's what happened. Like, felt very, like, let's just keep brushing this stuff under the rug. And maybe that was the point? I don't know. Leaving the door open for a sequel. Oh, yeah. They tried to (laughs) do that a little bit, yeah. Because she was still, like, looking over her shoulder and stuff. And they're, you know, the FBI are completely useless in this investigation, just like the police are. Yeah. The only reason that uh, Sheriff Michael Bean knows anything is because he was personally involved in the incident that the killer is seeking revenge for. Yeah. It's hilarious because, like, the kids are doing a better job just, like, already. Yeah. (laughs) The kids and their cherry poppin' ball. (laughs) (laughs) Police are useless could also be yeah. what the film is saying. There is you know, that too. Now that the now that everything has been dealt with, you know, there can only be more trauma from getting these useless FBI agents involved in a situation which has mostly resolved itself. Um could I mean, be something I we guess, choose to interpret. But you still have like that fucking principal who's a rapist, like in charge of a high school. Oh, he's dead. He's dead. Oh yeah, he did die. Movie. You're right. You're right. He did die. Yeah, there's Virgin there's, there's no one left. Yeah, right. he's dead. Yeah. Uh, Michael Bean is dead, and the killer is dead. Like yeah, it's the, all wrapped up. You're right. The law can't really do anything at that point. But it still <laughs> feels no point like the law you know involved. we're not going to talk about this rape that happened. We could also choose to interpret the final scene of the falls turning red as those sins coming back because they can't lie about them forever. That's true. Yeah, it didn't feel like a clean cut at the end to me. Like, I I really feel like they were leaving the door open for a sequel, not knowing what kind of distribution shit they were going to get into with the MPAA. Cherry Falls 2, Cherry Faller. (laughs) (laughs) Well, did we generally like this movie? I thought it was pretty good. Uh, (laughs) Yes. Yeah, but uh, just uh, one extra note. Um, that I have just been holding on to this whole time. Brittany Murphy's character in this movie is literally a virgin who cannot drive. Like, <laughs> oh that my is God. all I yes. can think about is like, she's a virgin who can't drive. Man, I watched these uh, adorable <laughs> interviews she did on set where she was like introducing the movie and she did the same horror apologist stuff I was talking about earlier where she was like, I just thought this was like a really good script. Like it wasn't like a horror movie at all. It was just a good movie, you know? And she had that same bubbly enthusiasm Aww. that she has in like Drop Dead Gorgeous and in Clueless. And I was Aww. like, God, what an angel. The world is worse off without her for sure. Yep. Uh, next week on the show, we're going to talk about another star who was um, excellent in Drop Dead Gorgeous and in a bunch of 90s movies. Uh, but she lived on and is famous again because she is on... One of the Real Housewives uh, spinoffs. Are you going to be talking about Denise Richards? Yes, we are. <laughs> are y'all going to watch Tammy and the T-Rex? Yes, we are. 
to be a tiny armed T-Rex fly on that wall. <laughs> you know, I saw that movie in 2016 or 2017 as like a um, YouTube upload. Um, this newer cut that has all the expletives and sex and gore put back in it um, is elusive to me. I bought a Blu-ray so that we could properly watch this like new cult cut of the film. Which I already enjoyed without all the sex and violence, so I'm sure I'll enjoy it even more in this go-round. But this was mostly an excuse for Brittany to talk about Real Housewives on this podcast, which she does anyway, but um, <laughs> she wanted to make me watch a few episodes of the show. Um, so we're going to talk about Real Housewives for a little bit, and then a few choice Denise Richards um, films. And in the meantime, check out Swapflix.com for other weekly movie reviews. I've gone from daily to weekly because I've just run out of energy recently. But I'm still putting up two or three a week. There's stuff to read on there. If you're just going to the site for the first time, don't worry. You'll have enough to read for the rest of your life. It's true. Oh, God. (laughs) It's true. We've been doing this for a long time. Oh, my God. What a depressing and bleak (laughs) (laughs) final. Oh, my God. Is this the series finale, y'all? Don't say that. (laughs) Are we going to sweep up? (laughs) Um, No, we'll be back. (laughs) Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. (laughs) 